Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School, Chicago. I hope and pray that the following message blesses you with peace and hope in Christ, who died and rose for you, for free. It is yours. If you'd like to support God's mission of giving life, hope, peace, joy, and love in the city of Chicago, go to stjames-lutheran.org. Peace. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We got some difficult days ahead. It really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Dr. Martin Luther King, the day before he is shot, Something not told enough when people study this man and the work that he did. Civil rights, not using violence, but words to get things accomplished. Wouldn't that be nice nowadays? Something not talked enough about this man is it was based in his belief in the success of civil rights was based an epiphany that he had that superseded and transcended any accomplishment that he might or might not see right in front of him. It's really true, because he says this kind of stuff all the time. Martin Luther King had an epiphany. One, Jesus died for him and all people and rose again, and God loves sinners. That made a difference to him and changed how he saw the world and how he dealt with challenges. And he also had another epiphany, and he talks about it here, that it's going to be okay. It's interesting because he does this a lot, always talking about work to do, but also always talking about hope that it didn't matter whether or not they accomplished what needed to be done there, whether America ever becomes great again or whatever, one day it will be okay. There's a city that's coming where we will all get along, where there'll be no more sin, death of the devil. And that epiphany that he had blessed his work in his day. Because it doesn't matter if he accomplished it or not, one day it would be okay. You need an epiphany like that? I hope you leave here with an epiphany just like that so you can say the same. The disciples, I think, got in a sort of epiphany that motivated them, compelled them to follow Jesus. In fact, I don't think that. John literally says this. Something happened, that wedding at Cana, that showed them something. It was an epiphany. It revealed something about this Jesus. John says at the end of this whole episode, he says, this was the first 
of his signs that Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and, and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, I have to believe it's more than just turning water into wine. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's the Savior. But something bigger that they witnessed, there was like a light and darkness. It was hope and hopelessness. It changed their thoughts about this guy, Jesus, and made them start to think that maybe it was going to be okay if you hang around with this Jesus. Let's see what happened. Look a little more specifically. If you want, you look it up yourself or listen. Chapter 2 of John, John says this. This also might help you learn how to read the Bible as we go through this. Think about this as we go through it. John says, on the third day, what do you know about third days? What happened when you think of the third day, what do you think of? Resurrection. And there's no way in the world when John writes this down that he's not thinking the same thing. On the third day, it's a good thing. The third day is awesome because on the third day, I saw the one that died that I love alive again. The third day is consummation. The third day is good. And what happens here? On the third day, there was a wedding. And weddings are good. I love weddings. Unlike a lot of pastors, maybe my fellow Pastor Glover over here, I love to do weddings. We joke because the joke among pastors is you'd rather do a funeral than a wedding (laughs) because you got an attentive audience at a funeral. (laughs) But I love weddings. It's beautiful, and I love to go to weddings. What a celebration. What a joy. And it's a gift of God. And Jesus is at a wedding, we're going to find out, because so they're good. What a good thing to have on the third day, a wedding. And, the, and they would have weddings back then, and, and there would be the wedding of two people committed to one another that God gave to each other. I mean, God literally says, before he created weddings, he said, it's not good that man is alone. It's something to celebrate when two people are together. And in Jesus' day, they celebrate for like a week you bring out your best. You would throw a party because you're celebrating the gifts of God and, and that your son or your daughter is not alone. The fruitfulness of life. Nothing wrong with that. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Not a bad invitation. You know, I I don't know, for those uh, married, when you are figuring out who's invited to your wedding, that's a challenge because you got to make some cuts sometimes because you can only afford so much. And so your third cousin, so-and-so, maybe not. Uncle Larry, he usually ends up drunk after three beers and making a fool of himself, probably going to cut him. You know, it's hard. I oftentimes tell couples that their preparation for the wedding is premarital counseling in of itself as they have to work things out, figure things out, work hard to put on this beautiful wedding and party, and who are you going to invite? Well, this couple, they might not have known it, but boy, they made a good choice in inviting Jesus to their wedding, did they not? As I tell couples, I've used this text for wedding sermons, that's why you have a wedding in a church, because the couple is inviting their family and friends, but the couple is inviting Jesus to their wedding. 
And let us invite Jesus to our lives and see what happens. So Jesus shows up, and I like this, with his disciples. It doesn't sound like, I feel like he's sort of Kanye West and sort of a posse, you know what I mean? Like, were they, were they invited? Or wherever he goes, these guys are hanging out. But they're coming with him. And then the tragedy. The wine runs out. I mean, that's, that is a tragedy. Just practically. Imagine the party going and... There's no more food. There's no more wine. It's done. The sadness, the, the preparation, the excitement that the couple had for that day, planning for a year. And it all falls apart. Didn't buy enough. Didn't have enough. I mean, it's, it really is a stressful time preparing for a wedding. In fact, I tell couples, do your best, but don't put too much pressure on yourself because you're going to be disappointed in something. Something's not going to work out right. The decorations are not going to be right. So-and-so's not going to show up. Who knows? In fact, the pandemic has been a wonderful time of learning the basics of wedding, and you can't expect anything. But still, it's disappointing. The biggest day of your life. Been dreaming about this for years, probably. And here we are, the wine ran out. But more so back then. Embarrassing today for sure, but back then, shame. You are throwing a party. You're actually uh, returning a favor because you've been invited to wedding parties and they took care of you and you invite that person back. It's a, it's a way of actually sp uh, spreading your name around and getting not, not power, but just sort of like loyalty, et cetera. You invite people to parties and you take care of them and now their wine ran out. I mean, it's embarrassing. It is shameful. It's hurting their reputation. People are whispering. That's how the reception goes. I wonder how their wedding is going to go. And I think it will be for today, of course, too. But back then, this is huge. And think about this. It's not just lacking of, of substance and food, but it's shameful. It's an embarrassment. The wine runs out. I think you can think about this even further in your own lives. Your wine running out. You did all you could, and you still fail. You went to the right school. You got the right connections. And you still didn't get that promotion. You didn't get that job. You're not who you thought you would be when you turned 50. The wine kind of runs out. You peaked. You're done. Or maybe literally health. You work out. You do all the right stuff. You eat right. You're quadruple vaccinated. And yet still the doctor calls and says, you got this terrible disease. And I'm not even talking about COVID. Or maybe your own marriage has run out of wine. And you don't get along. Or maybe you messed up broke that commitment. When you were younger, you never thought you'd be that person to do what you did, but you did. And you got nothing. 
I think there's many different ways that we can absolutely relate to wine running out, no matter what we do and prepare for, our righteousness running out, our health running out, our brains and our intelligence and our hard work only gets us so far. Everybody's wine runs out. No matter how much you plan, how much you prepare, how good you think you are, your wine runs out. Shame and guilt and fear and the party's about to stop. Mary, the first disciple, I would say the first believer and a role model as a believer does what when she sees the wine running out? She goes to Jesus. And I don't know if she meant for him to go to the 7-Eleven to go get some Mogan David. Maybe. I don't think she knew. She didn't know. She didn't have a plan. She wasn't even thinking miracles. I get, we always assume she's thinking some great miracle. Who knows? Just Jesus is servant. Jesus takes care of it. My son will take care of it. And Jesus replies, and don't do this at home, kids. She says, they have no wine. Jesus says, woman, don't say that. <laughs> and also, in this language, and what he's saying in the Aramaic, likely, it's not an insult either. He's not saying woman. Maybe he's sort of separating himself, that she is his mother, but in a sense, and the large economy of the universe, she is a woman like we are women and men, and he's come to serve us all. But I think overall, this is something you would say. He's not being insulting, although he's a little, eh, I don't know. I think he's thinking about the cross, actually, at this wedding. I think his mind's on the cross. I think once he's baptized, starts moving, his mind is on the cross. I, I know it. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mind is on the cross. That's what he came to do. Forget about a water to wine trick or helping this party to go on. He's come, he's come to save the party. Life. You. And not just for the future, but to put an oomph into our lives today. My hour has not yet come, the cross. So think about that as you see what he's about to do. That's on his mind. And Mary does this. I was thinking about this a couple days ago. Our Roman Catholic brothers like to use this episode to show that Mary has a certain say in what Jesus does. And they kind of go too far with this, I would say. What's kind of funny is Jesus actually gives you all license to ask him to do stuff for you. That's kind of the joke. What Mary's doing, telling her son to do stuff, Jesus literally says to you, do the same. Ask and you shall receive, he says to foolish people like us. And so after Jesus kind of says, my hour's not come, look what Mary does next. She says, she goes to the servant, says, almost kind of like, never mind him, he can't help to love. He can't help to serve. He's a sucker for people and problems. You know what I mean? I think she knows her son. He can't help to help. He can talk all he wants, but he's going to help out. 
And so she says, do whatever he says, which I love. His words work. All the while, remember, the disciples are watching this. So what happens next? Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These are things that God told them to do. Before you eat, you need to wash yourself, wash your hands. And it's not because they were thinking about germs back then. It's because everything in the Mosaic law, the ceremonial foods, unclean foods, clean foods, animals, all that was all about the constant lesson given to God's people of Israel that they were unclean because of their actions and sin. And the world was a mess. And you need to be clean from it. That's the whole point of all the ceremonial laws. And even this one here. That you come and you eat and you would wash in these special uh, jars, you'd wash your hands, again, not just to clean yourself, but to remind myself, I was out in the dirty and the filth of the world, and I need forgiveness, quite frankly, and to be cleaned. And so he says, take those jars, and these jars are empty. Come on, this is just, talk about epiphany. Wines run out, what does that mean? Empty jars, how do you feel? Empty sometimes. The party's about to be empty. Their hopes and dreams are about to be empty. Their reputation is going to be empty. As sinners, we are empty. We got nothing to say to God, nothing to hold up to say, look at me, you should save me because I'm good. We're empty. Take these empty jars, used for cleanliness, and look what he does. Each holding about 20, 30 gallons, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and notice this, John, every word matters, and they filled them up to the brim because that's what God does he doesn't do anything half you know what all the way or nothing in fact not only all the way but overflowing he's wasteful this God terrible at business throws things everywhere loves the unlovable wastes his time with people just because he loves them fills these jars up and lets the water trickle all over the sides So they filled him up to the brim, and he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they take it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and the disciples did, they were watching an epiphany unfold. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, assuming it was from the groom, And in a sense, it was the groom who did this, who come to make a commitment to an unfaithful bride like us. And he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and after they drank a while, then they bring out the natural light. I'm sorry, the (laughs) poor wine. That makes sense, right? Because we're cheap. We're cheap, and we can only do so much, and our works and our money can only go so far, so we got to be smart, good businessmen. We're not going to waste good-tasting wine on people who don't care. (laughs) Remember, God wastes. He's very, very wasteful. And he goes, but you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, not only did Jesus save the party, 
but it actually got better. Not only did Jesus save the party, but it actually got better. Like the marriage starts out the honeymoon and everything's great. Everyone says this all the time. And then things sort of become mediocre. That's not true in my marriage, by the way, Julie. (laughs) Not in Jesus. Things are tough and crazy now. The better is coming. Good days are coming. You're going to be happier in the future, not just simply in the past when you were a kid and you thought everything was fine, and it was not. We're not going to just survive through the pandemic and through this life. We're not just going to get out by the skin of our teeth. But the better is coming. This is huge, isn't it? Because we have stood on the mountain. And we've seen the promised land. These disciples saw this, and they saw a lot. I don't know if they could articulate it, but they saw the clean becoming clean. They saw the party continuing. They saw the real groom, Jesus, had come. And they remembered the words of Isaiah, chapter 25, on this mountain we will eat and we will drink. And they heard all the words of the prophets, how the desert's going to become a vineyard, and death will be conquered, and evil gone, and we will party like this wedding. These disciples, John said, saw and had an epiphany, and they began to believe in this Jesus. Stick with him. The party continues. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same for you. He is the forgiver. He is the life giver. And this is nothing because these same disciples, you think that was an epiphany. Three years later, they're looking up at the cross. Talk about empty jars, a symbol of death. And God, the party giver, dying for them, and not wine, but blood coming out. And three days later, they're going to look up and see that epiphany, that God loves us that much that he would die for us. And three days later, rise again. Talk about filling up an empty jar with life, a tomb that now is a symbol of Joy and future, a cross that is now a symbol of love and peace. And in the, by the blood of Jesus, you are cleaned. And he literally gives you now a new wine. Not the wrath of God. He drank that on the cross. But forgiveness and talk about cleanness, totally forgiven. And the promise of resurrection Today you have an epiphany. Today you're going to eat and drink an epiphany. And today you are going to say, like this man did, with all the craziness around us, and sometimes it looks like the good isn't going to work out. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to say the same thing as Dr. King said. Longevity has its place. It's nice to live a long time, but I'm not concerned about that now. We're just going to do God's will. It's hard to do God's will because it doesn't look like it works all the time. 
fixing race relations, loving our neighbor, bringing justice, being kind, generosity. It doesn't look like it works all the time. He said the same thing. But you, like him, have been allowed to go up to the mountain, and we have looked over, and we have seen the promised land, so we can be happy today, not worried about anything, not fearing any man. Our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.